1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Subi Rautio, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Lee Jung, who is Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Davis. Li Zhang is here to talk about her new book, Anxious China, Inner Revolution and Politics of Psychotherapy, published in 2020 by University of California Press. Li Zhang's book shows how anxiety has become an indicator for the breathless pace of China's economic reform. Faced with increasing market-driven competition and profound social changes, more and more middle-class urbanites are turning to Western-style psychological counselling to grapple with their their mental distress. Anxious China offers an in-depth ethnographic account of how an unfolding inner revolution is reconfiguring selfhood, psyche, family dynamics, sociality, and the mode of governing in post-socialist times. In this refreshingly original and honest exploration, Li Hope shows how anxiety, broadly construed in both medical and social terms, has become a powerful indicator for the general pulse of contemporary Chinese society and how psychotherapy has spread as a potential answer to social and personal problems that need to be addressed. An excellent companion for anthropology and China studies specialists, Anxious China elaborately traces how a new psychotherapeutic culture has taken root to thrive and transform itself across a wide range of personal, social, and political domains. Lee, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Sui, uh, for the kind introduction. And also thank you for taking the time to read my book and for this uh, uh, conversation. I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing some ideas with you
2: I'm really looking forward to this as well. Um, I would like to begin this episode by asking you about asking you about your background and how you grew to be interested in china's psychotherapeutic culture.
0: Yeah, um, you know for readers who are familiar with my previous work, um, you can see an interesting trajectory so In the past, for my uh, previous two books, I have looked at migration, housing, middle class. So they are more about structural transformations um, in China. And you can say uh, those are uh, external, profound external changes that took place in China. Now, for this third book, I am moving towards the inner landscape of people, right? Because I believe that uh, China's economic reform uh, has generated not profound changes, not only in the socioeconomic structure, but also uh, in people's inner landscape. So this is a moving inward, uh, unlike my previous book. So that's, uh, that's my kind of the research trajectory. But what led me to this project also has a lot of uh, uh, family, personal uh, reasons. So I, over the past you know, several decades living and working in China, I have witnessed a lot of uh, uh, people suffering from mental, psychological uh, illness or just simply emotional uh, struggles and disturbance. Um, for example, my own family, my mother, my aunt, and cousin, they all have suffered to different degrees depression, anxiety, OCD, etc. But for a long time, people in China simply did not have the language to even describe their uh, emotional pains, let alone getting treatment. So for many decades, uh, psychotherapy did not exist in China. It's a relatively new phenomenon. So I just feel really, um, I feel that it's very necessary. We need to pay attention to this realm uh, in which people are struggling. Um, So that's what got me to this project.
2: Yeah, that... that, um... Those stories of people's inner landscape and the struggles really come out beautifully in your work. And um, as I mentioned in the in the introduction, the honesty that that you um, that you place through the through the through your writing is really is really moving as a reader. Um, but to talk more about the the lack of the language that or the um, the lack of knowledge about psychotherapeutic practices. Um, you really draw on that in the first chapter um, in Psy Fever, where you trace the historical developments of psychology and mental health care in modern and contemporary China. So in this first chapter, you describe the first mental hospital that was opened in Guangdong, Guangdong in 1898 by an American Presbyterian medical missionary, and he named the hospital Refugee for the Insane. You also provide really insightful information about how some of the some of the pioneers in Chinese psychology, such as Yan Yongjing, um, who emphasized the importance of studying the heart and spirit to translate directly from traditional Chinese medicine. In addition to Yan Yongjing, you also follow another pioneer, Wang Guowei, who, co- who coined the Chinese name psychology, Xinli. And here you you bring to the reader's attention the importance of um, the Xinli, li, um, the principle. So here he wanted to point out that psychology has the scientific quality um, of the Li, of principle. Um, From there, you kind of trace on to the Maoist era leading to the Cultural Revolution, where psychology and psychiatry faced a colossal setback. You mentioned um, in the first chapter, um, the famous slogan at the time, who needs the psychologist if one has the party? Yes. (laughs) And... um, (laughs) It's just um I mean it's just it's just so so fascinating how you how you trace this kind of historical development um, till the end of Mao Zedong rule where the growth of psychology um, in kind of academic disciplines really um, grew with such great speed in the 1980s and from there you lead up to the present day um, which you de- define um, in this kind of as China experiencing an inner revolution of of psy fever um could you Tell our list listeners a bit more about this revolution um, to contextualize where psychology stands in Chinese um, society today. Mm, sure.
0: Yeah. I just want to go back a little bit to say I think you did a great uh, job s- summarizing the uh, development. I try to trace. You it is interesting that in the at the turn of the century we did see some very promising development of uh, psychology, um, but then. Um, you know, it was interrupted uh, by the war and then during the Cultural Revolution, uh, basically we entered a desert of psychology and, and, and psychiatry, right? So there was nothing really there. And during that period, um, because you asked me about this language um to describe their pain. People just didn't have the language to describe emotional pain. Partly, it's it's also because it was heavily stigmatized when people have mental illness or emotional problems, right? Even if people just ordinary people experiencing um, depression or anxiety, they could be easily lumped into this broad category in China we call the phones mad people. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and you immediately yeah, yeah. lose the credibility, um, and you you are uh, basically excluded, abandoned by your family and society. So it was really sad that period. I want to kind of emphasize, especially during the Cultural Revolution under Maoism. Um, for example, Arthur Climent, uh, a metaphors- uh, anthropologist, uh, wrote in his book uh, during that period. Uh, People actually suffered tremendously mentally uh, in mental distress, but they could not express that. So how did Chinese people express their uh, mental suffering, psychological suffering? It was through what Kleinman called, very famously, somatization, right? So people have to express their psychological and mental distress through Bodily illness, somatic complaints and that's what we call the somatization you know during that period and I see that that trend actually is still going on in China if you compare China with the West uh, we see a lot of somatization how people just kind of a, um, uh, don't want to talk about psychological problems but instead they they complain about their uh, digestive system illness and stuff as a way of expressing their mental distress now I guess your question finally I'm returning to your question about this new side fever today and I think that's a major term for me is that this new language very much westernized language of uh, uh, psychotherapy uh, talking about one's emotional pain, a new language, uh, is entering uh, Chinese society. Um, that allow people to talk about their psychological and emotional suffering, even though I still think there's a great deal of stigmatization in Chinese society. And alongside this very psychological, therapeutic language, we also see a very much medicalized language. When I say medicalized language, I'm talking about um, the notion that people now suffer from anxiety, 焦慮症, depression, yi and the stress, 壓力, Right? So when in Chinese when we add the word zheng, it's a syndrome, to anxiety or depression, that become it becomes a medical category that can be recognized and treated. So it has the plus and minus uh, with this medicalized language. Um, So I think this is what's very distinct in China today is this therapeutic and medicalized language to describe one's uh, inner turmoils and suffering. Uh, And this was largely absent or not even possible, I would say, prior to uh, 1990.
2: and in the in the chapter, you really draw on, I think what was most vividly um, illustrative for me was the with was this kind of um, trend in talk show um, talk show programs and TV um, TV shows that that used this language of um, of, um, of of anxiety and and or anything that has this gen, um, which I think was really fascinating um, to read about. Just how much attention and how popular it, how popular it, um, it became through media.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, the, the one you're referring to is called Li Fang Tan Psychological uh, Consultation, right? Hosted by uh, China's central television station. Uh, it ran for many years and was very popular. Uh, what's interesting about this show was that in the beginning, they aired it late night. Uh, close to midnight because they assume that first of all not many people would tune in. Secondly, they assume that people who want to watch this program would be worried that their friends and the family would see them watching that and and Kind of curious, so, so they want to give them some privacy, um, you know, because mental health uh, is still very much stigmatized in China. Uh, but they gradually actually got very popular, and then they moved the time more to the prime time. Uh, people can watch it during the day. So you just show, you know, the, the concern about stigmatization. And this program became extremely popular. And as you say, you know, uh, it's a host. There and then, they, it always has a psychological expert. They invite an expert sitting there and talking to a client or a family. So it's a popular show, but it's also wants to evoke the notion of scientific, you know, psychological science approach. That as a more like a scientific approach, even though if you watch a lot of those shows, it's kind of like some of this. Dr. Phil in <laughs> the Oprah great. show, <laughs> but, but he wants to invoke uh, science in China because a lot of Chinese people, they are really believing this kind of a scientism, that science can, can help them mm. with their illness.
2: Yeah. Mm. yeah, and that's really something that you point out um, and describe in great detail in several chapters of your book. Um, but. I wanted to move on now to, to chapter two, Bento um Culturing, which you call Bento Hua Culturing Psychotherapy. So just now, as you mentioned, these talk shows that are very much um, kind of borrowing, you um, maybe Oprah Winfrey, um, similar kind of um, aesthetics or, or themes or the kind of style um, that, some, that they might have seen from America. That's something that you really draw on in chapter two. So this motion, notion of Bentu Hua, where um, Western style counseling and global therapeutic models are being um, implemented through Chinese practitioners to address and speak um, to chi- psychological problems in China's social cultural context. So um, what I really enjoyed about chapter two, or this is a theme that you obviously bring up throughout your book, but this notion of the self um, in Chinese thought as a means of associating with the heart, and again, um, this kind of um, this this was interesting for me because it also returns to um, kind of the the founders of of psychology who who wanted to specify the Xue, the Xin, the heart, in it as well. So the notion of self and the heart again coming up throughout your chapters. Um, and this is one of the many culturing efforts of or the Bentuhua, or at least that's how I understood it in chapter three. Um, but perhaps you could, you could tell our listeners a bit more about this notion of Bentuhua. How do Chinese therapists and clients reconfigure therapeutic practices and relationships in response to the particular social and cultural conditions facing them in life, with life in China? Yes.
0: You know, this is actually my favorite chapter for myself. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes, I put in a lot of uh, effort in this chapter because Ben Hua is so crucial to this whole project Chinese psychotherapists are engaging. So we know that psychotherapy is largely imported from the West, First, actually brought by a lot of a German psychotherapists, and then um, American, um, Canadian, and Europe and other Europeans. So it's a very much Western uh, mode of thinking about the self, about emotion, uh, work well in China and address the specific. Problems facing Chinese people, it is crucial to make it fit the local condition and address Chinese people's cultural sensibilities and social expectations. Right. So, uh, I I argue in this book that psychotherapy is successful and take holds in China and thrive across different domains, largely because Uh, Chinese practitioners have been very successful in many cases uh, uh, indigenize, 本土化, uh, Mm indigenize Western psychotherapy, Mm -hmm. right? So there are many ways of doing that. So in this particular chapter, I talked about three particular uh, psychotherapy models or branches that Chinese uh, practitioners Select, embrace, and uh, work on. So, in addition to you mentioned here, uh, the the notion of the heart, how heart is so central to Chinese uh, psychotherapy, to the remaking of the self. In this chapter, I more focus on this three specific models. Right, if you have a chance, uh, other people to look at the book. So, there are many branches. in global psychotherapy today, we know you can count more than 10, many. So why certain models are popular in China and take hold, but not others? For example, Freudian, um, classical Freudian psychoanalysis is not very popular in China, although some people do engage in that, but it's more almost like an intellectual exercise. In the real world, counseling world and the therapy, people are, are, are more interested in other approaches. So in Kuan Min, where I conducted my field work, uh, I can say that these three are most preferred. So the first one is the Satya family therapy. And the second is cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. And the last one I discuss in the book is Jung-inspired sand play therapy. So in the book, I go into the detail to describe what each of this model is about and why they are attractive to Chinese practitioners and clients. So, so should I go into some more details here to give maybe a couple of examples?
2: Uh, yeah, please. I think our listeners would love to hear more.
0: Yeah. So, for example, the first one is the Satya family model. So, this is a psychotherapy model developed by Virginia Satir, American psychotherapist, um, who was very popular in the 1960s, 70s, and and, and through, throughout the 1980s. Uh, nowadays, most people don't really know who she is here, but she's extremely popular in China uh, because she has been introduced to China. And... Um, her therapeutic model has been branded and rebranded to the Chinese audience. Now, why do people like this? So there are many reasons, but I think one of the most important reasons is that this therapeutic model uh, believes that What we think as individual problems, issues are never individual. They are often derived from the dysfunctional family system. So in order to help one person, we need to situate this person in the family system, right? So in the therapy, we don't just talk to this one client. We should bring in important key family members into the therapeutic process and usually spouse, parents or children or grandparents even into this therapeutic model. And this model, really speaks to a lot of Chinese people who believe that the Chinese family system is so central to our social life. So, um, Many people told me during the field work that their problem, oftentimes, is de- derived from the conflict with their uh, family members. Right. So, in order to solve their problem, their social, uh, social and emotional suffering, they have to address this uh, problem in the broader family context. So, in the book, I describe the relationship, the connection between the Satya model and the Chinese family, how central the Chinese family is to social life in China. right? So uh, this is one example. The second example is about cognitive behavior therapy. Now, this one is very interesting. This one, CBT, is very popular in the West because insurance companies love it. It is claims that it can do short period of therapy, say 10, and then we solve the problem and we have evidence to prove that it's not like a classical psychotherapy that you need to see a therapist three times a week or four years. No insurance company wants to pay for that nowadays. CBT usually claims that they can uh, improve the patient's outlook by only 10 or 20 at most therapists, because they work on your ways of looking at issues. They want to change your cognition, the way you look at your situation and problems. As a result, you can also invoke behavior change. So this is very popular in the West. Now, it's popular in China. The first set of reasons is the same, right? Because it's faster, it's cheaper. But in China, I argue there's another very important reason, and that's very unique to Chinese society. Uh, That is the relationship between CBT and socialist thought work, 思想工作 because 思想工作, it was a form of political persuasion under socialism that's how it was started right you do someone's uh, thought work is to usually in the past is the cadre party member uh talk to an individual in order to um uh, help this person to align with the uh, party's goal revolutionary a mission. So they believe that you can change people's way of looking at things and thinking, right? So a party member would do that. It's very political. It's very ideological. But CBT, of course, it's not a political ideology. It claims to science, right? Um, however, several therapists told me that they... Uh, Before they became a psychotherapist, they were actually doing socialist thought work for many years (laughs) at universities or state-owned enterprises uh, because this kind of thought work gave them the skills to listen to people and talk to people and to become persuasive and empathetic. So that was the connection between CBT and socialist thought work. So it's not the content. The content is radically different, but it's the form, the skills they have acquired uh, through uh, socialist thought work. So that's another reason. I can go on to talk about even the third one. Although my favorite is very long, but maybe we don't have much time. But I encourage people when they read it to to look at this profound connection between Jungian therapy, sand play, and traditional culture, because Jung is deeply, deeply influenced by what he calls Eastern culture, uh, Chinese and the Indian uh, traditional uh, philosophy. Uh, and, and, and culture. So there's this deep connection there in my book, Traces.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, and we, we can return to, because to you bring up um San play theory and other chapters as well. So mm-hmm. we can return to that um, okay. as we yeah. as we continue going yeah. through the that, chapters. That's my
0: favorite because I got yeah. certified in sandplay play <laughs> therapy. So yeah. hopefully we can return to that when we talk about the therapeutic self.
2: Well, I, th- I mean, I hope so too, because it's just so fantastic how you were able to learn these um, therap- the, You basically are a trained therapist through your fieldwork, which is just um, incredible. Um, but we'll, we'll return to that um, as we continue discussing. Thank you, Lee, for the for the overview of the of these therapeutic techniques which you bring up in chapter two, and. Um, they really you really do elaborate on them in great detail. So obviously, um, listeners do do read the book itself to to learn more about these techniques. Um, so chapter three called, is called Therapeutic Relationships with Chinese Characteristics, question mark. And here you um, Go further into these therapeutic techniques um, by looking at the relationship between the therapist and the client, which is often times where some might argue, um, as you, if I remember correctly, you claim in the chapter, um, kind of the foundation of, of a good um, therapeutic um, kind of environment. So, in discussing these relationships between the therapist and the client, you define the following to be common expected features in the therapeutic in, um, environment in China. So the clients expect fast and practical um, kind of outcome. They expect the therapist to take on an authoritative role. And also you bring about um, this notion of family proxy in this chapter. And I especially... um, Enjoyed, or what was moved by your description of the access to family proxy, because you situate yourself in this chapter and, and elaborate on your mother's experiences with psychological distress as she grows older, and and your role having to kind of um, mediate between um, doctors trying to trying to access the correct um, drugs and prescription for your for your mother. Um, but could you tell our audience, audiences a bit more about your own experiences and, re- and research and what it taught you about um, the therapeutic therapeutic relationship um, with Chinese characteristics and this kind of question mark that you have in your chapter title?
0: Yes. Um, so... In this chapter, I talk about uh, therapeutic relationships with Chinese characteristics with a question mark, as you emphasize, that's very important, the question mark. Because I, I put a question mark there um, to invite us to think about uh, how effective these characteristics are for healing. And there is a sense of irony there. I think it is unique to China, but at the same time, I also question whether um, they are uh, useful um, and effective. And of course, you know, when I talk about this, I also have a very ambivalent feeling towards uh, these characteristics. Uh, I understand why people. Do those things due to time pressure, you know, uh, financial pressure, etc. So they want a fast, a practical uh, therapy, and also, you know, the, the the fact that people look for therapeutic authority is also uh, very unique. I think quite unique to China, and has a lot to do with uh, 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 how people think about medical authority. Uh, in throughout Chinese history, right? So uh, in psychotherapy. So I personally, I have had years of psychotherapy in the U.S. So I'm familiar with how psychotherapy is conducted in the West. I have had different psychotherapies uh, for personal reasons and for my research. So it's very different. It's a sharp contrast to me. Uh, in the West at least ideally, the therapist would push the clients to reflect on his or her own uh, issues and form a dialogue uh, with the therapist. Uh, The therapist is more like a companion, accompanying you on this journey of uh, uh, self-discovery and healing, right? But in China, uh, that does not quite work well. Even though some therapists try to do that, they encounter constant resistance from their clients. Uh, as I describe in the book, a lot of Chinese clients, they want to look for this external um, therapeutic authority who can help them to solve their problems. They think, I paid so much money for you. So I come here, I'm not just going to talk to you. <laughs> I want uh, advice and guidance so that's their sort of a way of thinking about uh, therapy talk therapy um, and it's uh, extremely uh, difficult uh, this resistance is very strong um, you know the pushback so oftentimes Chinese therapists they have to come at a more compromised position so they they try to encourage the clients to uh, discuss their issues, to form partnership with them. But at the same time, they are also compelled, oftentimes, to give them some concrete advice. I witnessed several therapists at the end. The clients would ask the therapist to give them, for example, a list of things to do, <laughs> not just sitting here talking. What can I do in my relationship? Uh, exercising, whatever, the food to take, something concrete advice. So that's very important uh, for them. And uh, with regard to the third characteristic, family proxy, I wrote here. uh, Again, this is uh, one of the most uh, personal uh, parts in this book. I talk about my mother, my late mother, uh, who suffered uh, from a number of physical and psychological disorders for decades, but we didn't know how to even name the issue she has, how to talk about her distress in medical terms until much later, <clears throat> in the later years, um, the two or three years before she uh, passed away. But at that time, she was in her 80s, and she was not able to physically go to see her psychotherapist or psychiatrist so the choice we had was do nothing or uh, as a family member I would go to see a psychiatrist for her in order to get the medication so we chose the latter and of course it was extremely um, uh, difficult because it put tremendous pressure on me as a daughter who had to convey her Illness and distress to a, ther- a, a psychiatrist who doesn't even know what she looks like. And then, when a the psychiatrist prescribed, in China, uh, psychiatrists prescribe drugs. That's mostly what they do. They do tiny little bit of psychotherapy, but mostly drugs. So, I remember that the time I went, I came out with this prescription, a list of four drugs. And I know some of them, and I looked up uh, the other, and they are very strong anti the antipsychotic, anti uh, depression SSRI uh, drugs. And I know my mom could not handle that. She was very frail. She was, in you know, about eighty, some five pounds of body. She could not. Her body could not take take that medication. So as family members, we had to make a very difficult decision: what to give her do I give all this medicine to her or not? And if I do, what would be the consequences, right? Um, It's heart-wrenching, just like, you know, so we eventually decided that based on my knowledge, I have read quite a bit of stuff and talking to other friend doctors I know, so we decided to give her two of them. And she did benefit from that uh, for the last two years. I think uh, Prozac really helped a great deal. For her. Um, So I was very grateful for that. But I, you know, always felt uh, uh, very stressed out. What if something went wrong and it was my responsibility because I decided to give her really that medication? Um, So, yeah, so that's the kind of situation a lot of Chinese people are facing. Um, And because of my own experience, my family experience, I felt that I had a much deeper connection uh, with people. And, you know, I understood their uh, struggle and dilemma on a much more personal level than just um, as a researcher.
2: Yeah, that that really does come through in in your writing um, and and the people that you you write about because they really do um, open up. To you, and, and you open up, you bring those stories, um, these narratives through your writing. Um, so it's really, it's really, I think, a rare, rare occasion for a researcher to, to take that, um, take that stance. Um, but also for for, I'm not talking about your mother, obviously, but the other interlocutors or or research research subjects or people that you you came across in your research, um, or through your through your therapy. That they're willing to to open up to you as well. Um, so, chapter four um, specifically focuses on the branding, um, branding the satire model. And you already introduced the satire model for our listeners. Um, and I think it's a really fascinating therapeutic practice. I also hadn't heard about it before I read your book. And you really. Um, As you mentioned just now as well, but you you mentioned in more detail in the book itself, um, that it's a very popular and trending um, therapeutic practice, specifically because it draws on this kind of the collective, the family, rather than the individual that needs to be healed. Um, So in chapter four, you write about Chinese about how Chinese therapists and clients reconfigure therapeutic practices and relationships in response to the particular social and cultural conditions facing them in life. And here the the focus is on the dialogic encounter between the global knowledge and the local situation that gives rise to a set of practices and relationships with distinct Chinese characteristics, such as the satire model therapeutic movement, but also you do bring it up on numerous occasions in the book. So would you like that I ask you that question, or do you feel like you've spoken enough about it?
0: Yeah, I think maybe since we're kind of uh, running out of a lot of time. So for this chapter, if you want to ask, maybe we can talk a little bit more about uh, commercialization of psychotherapy. You know, when I talk about the branding, this model, of course, there is this uh, dialogic uh, relationship how Chinese psychotherapists try to make something uh, out of uh, this uh, um, uh, important model but it's also about branding about commercialization and I think I write about the Satir model in a more like a sarcastic way like how it becomes almost like a mcdonald <laughs> franchising
2: okay, in but, China. okay let's, <laughs> let's go back to the don't speak too much now let's go back to the to the recording okay I'll return so so in chapter four you really go into more detail of the branding of psychotherapeutic practices which you really um, which you really don't try to hide through your writing It's obviously there is a branding there's a profit making industry here um, Can you tell our aud- audiences a bit more about that please?
0: Yes uh, this chapter um, uh, is about branding a psychotherapy. Uh, model. Uh, it's about the, the Satya model. But what I try to come across is how uh, psychotherapy in China nowadays is undergoing um, tremendous amount of commercialization. Um, so uh, it, psychotherapy, in a way, almost uh, is like a, McDonald's and the Starbucks, how they can be franchised in China. So in this chapter, I describe the details of a group of psychotherapists based in Yunnan province, Kunming, where I did my field work, how they try to acquire the rights to spread and brand the satire model to train people in China, because you can't just do that. Now the Satya model has an international institute and has a Pacific Institute of Satya model. So if you want to teach that in China, you need to first get the rights to do so. So uh, for this group of psychotherapists, I know the head very well. So one day I got this email from him. He said, "Lee, can you help me translate all this document for me? I said, what? So I look at that. There are uh, working on the application to get the franchise rights to uh, teach and to spread the Satya model in China. So I said, of course. So I translated the whole document for them. Um, and eventually, they submitted it to uh, the Satya Institute of the Pacific. And the head of that is Dr. John Beman who was uh, a student and worked with uh, Virginia Satir at one point. So he is now the international figure of uh, um, Satya model. So eventually this group uh, got the franchise rights. So they established a center in Kuomintang to uh, spread this model. And then it quickly also spread to other parts of uh, China. So I think in this chapter, I'm I'm describing this uh, franchising and the branding. And sometimes uh, the ways they do it, you know, I talk about uh, the importance of naming and how they try to claim visibility and how they run workshops to attract people's attention. And also I talk about the, the master effect. A lot of times very much exaggerated way of uh, advertising this model or the person, uh, Dr. Benman. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I guess I want to invite people to think about uh, uh, the the almost irony of how a psychotherapeutic model is imported and practiced in China uh, in this context of hyper-commercialization. So, yeah, that's like the main theme of this chapter.
2: Yeah, you really kind of put it on the platform of, of um – profit making. Um, I especially liked your your reference to the Dasher Xiao Ying, which is such a um such a prominent way of 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 any kind of any any trend trends that are obviously anywhere in the world, but especially in China, and um, the kind of the charisma that um that these people bring with them and that you really draw out in great detail in the chapter is just fantastic and it's really fascinating. So in Chapter 5, titled Crafting a Therapeutic Self, um, you ask, why is the self, so in Chinese zi or wo, granted salience amongst the Chinese middle class today? You provide honest and, emo- again, emotionally moving narratives of how self-development and self-care are emerging to reshape contemporary urban Chinese mentalities of the self as an object that can be worked on, adjusted, and improved through psychotherapeutic techniques. I also enjoyed how you draw on the somatization of Chinese notions of the psychological self, so here drawing more on Kleinman's work, as you, as you mentioned earlier in, the, in this interview, in this discussion, um, but here you, you use somat, somatization to point out how the importance of taking care of oneself um, is practiced um, very widely in China through the mind and the body. From your material, you seek to define Chinese notions of self through middle class urbanites that cultivates new forms of self and family dynamics. Um, Can you expand a bit more on the relevance that self and the social play in changing notions of selfhood in China today?
0: Yes, I think you really um, put your finger um, on the key point of this chapter, right? It's about uh, the rise of a new form of self. I call it the therapeutic self because it's a form of self uh, being made and remade with the help of psychotherapeutic techniques. But what's most important to this chapter is to look at the dialogic relationship actually between the self and the social. I think there's always the tension between the self and social. And I'm trying to show that in this context, the self is never individualistic, even though uh, as Yan Yunxiang and some others have argued that Chinese society is becoming very much individualized. Um, Nevertheless, I think the self is still very much embedded in the broader social nexus, and it's in constant dialogue with the broader social, including one's family, king, um, workplace, friends, and community. And you can see in this chapter that while people come here to look for a new uh, space, and new technique to work and improve the self, uh, they constantly actually are drawn back into the social world in which they live. So I um, eventually came up with this uh, uh, two terms that describe this dual process, um, that namely uh, disentangling and re-embedding. Right, disentangling is the possibility that one can actually temporarily remove oneself from the obligations of the family, of workplace, um, to uh, actually have an opportunity to work on the self, to look at oneself in a relatively safe therapeutic setting. re meaning that subsequently the person has to return to his or her social world because you cannot just retreat, retrieve, um, the ultimate goal is to have to come up with a better self more capable of handling one's family and social relationships so this is very crucial this disentangling and reembedding dual process and i think one of the cases i gave here is fungang this police officer i think his case best exemplify this dual process so in the book I describe, if you remember, uh, Suvi, there's a picture of a sand play arrangement made by Fungan. So I had this very intimate encounter with him because I was in one of the advanced psychotherapy, uh, sand play therapy training session with him. So we had about 12 people in the session um, over three days. And we all had to uh, uh, t- take Turns to play the role of a therapist and a client. So at one point, I was his therapist, and he uh, made this send play arrangement, and it was a very emotional moment. Took him a long time to make this, and then he started to uh, weep, and then I asked him. I had a dialogue with him about his situation, and he started to open up to me about his. Uh, problems and suffering, he had so much tension with his supervisor and the family. Um, He he is actually a police officer catching uh, pocket pickers on city buses. It was very tiring and dangerous at times, but his supervisor oftentimes accused him of slacking off, not doing his job. And then his uh, Family, his parents in law who lived with them because they had a baby uh, who t- helped take care of the baby also um, did not quite understand him why he would want to study psychotherapy. He's a man, he's a police officer, he should be masculine, he should be tough. Why would a man like him need to do this? Right? So he was like caught in this very difficult situation um, and he was very depressed and stressed out, but. Never had a chance to really see a a psychiatrist or got any formal diagnosis. So, this psychotherapy training opportunity really gave him a chance, a place, a safe place to open up, uh, to explore himself. Uh, But at the same time, as you can see, this is not a completely private individual space. It's a social space with a few others, like-minded others there, right? So I call this a form of psychosociality. So it's a space, therapeutic space that's safe, but at the same time, social. So he has this opportunity to explore his own psyche, at least for the moment, And in the end, of course, he had to return to his social world. But once he um, felt better about himself, understood himself better, he was uh, also able to handle his family relationships and work relationships much better. So um, um, I I won't get into too much detail here, but I think this is a case that best illustrates this dual process
2: yeah and and I think just for listeners, um as you mentioned just now in this kind of this workshop, so a lot of these um a lot of these encounters are specifically as you describe in your book are through these kind of workshops of of people um putting to their own time aside to learn these techniques, these therapeutic techniques and if I remember correctly in your book, um these people that you encounter are doing it very much. Um, for their own to work on themselves rather than to use these techniques to go out to become therapists, which I think is is very um, unique. I don't I can't think of similar types of events happening in, in where I am in Helsinki or anywhere in Europe.
0: Yeah. yeah, I so, think this is a distinct feature, definitely. Uh, going through yeah. uh, uh, workshops and the training sessions as a way of uh, uh, self-help, not going to help others, actually
2: um i feel like we've been talking a lot about um so just now you described this therapeutic self the zuo. but in chapter six you really talk more about um cult so the chapter six is called cultivating happiness and here you really talk more about um, a so-called happiness um craze or fever that is sp- spreading across china so this quest to seek happiness is taking place in the backdrop of a competitive and distressed society, as you mentioned in numerous occasions um, as the chapters unfold. Um, but this notion of happiness is an aspiration that people seek to develop personal success. And this route is primarily linked to North American scientifically proven roots to happiness, as you described at the beginning of our interview. So this notion of science here is very important. Um, At the same time in chapter six, you also draw on religious and spiritual roots that Chinese urbanites are taking to reach happiness. Um, As you describe, these roots are not disassociated from one another. Um, But what I really enjoyed about chapter six is that you bring in the role of the state here and you also bring in more about how political leaders welcome psychotherapeutic remedies such as positive psychology. Um, as in, it kind of it really resonates with the um, political effort to to make people harmo to make society harmonious. This kind of notion of happiness really strays along with her- harmony um, very closely. But perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about how the happiness fever is interpreted by the Chinese state. Yeah,
0: uh, happiness fever um, is a, a Chinese love. Fevers, as you can see, (laughs) everything's fever, (laughs) happiness fever. It just means it's a big trend, a movement. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the happiness fever in China um, is the tension um, between science and spirituality. Uh, We can say tension or the intention and effort to try to bring these two together. So on the one hand, you have people who are really much, you know, on the side of the science and claiming they have scientific ways of getting people happy. And that's largely through the route of positive psychology, right? So I talked about that. And then you have also people, on the other hand, who also claim that uh, happiness Needs more than science. Uh, it also needs spirituality um, in order to be happy. Um, and then you see people who are trying to blend these two together to bridge spirituality and therapeutics. And I find that that's the most interesting and most promising ways of approaching uh, happiness. So This is also not unique to China, though. Uh, Living in Northern California, here I am, um, I'm uh, very close to the mecca of such practice that's called Spirit Rock in Northern California. So uh, uh, a lot of people, the leaders, practitioners there, they are actually certified, trained uh, psychologists. They have a PhD in clinical psychology. But at the same time, some of them like Jack Cornfield is also a, a ordained monk you know he spent many years in India so these people embody this kind of a blending of a science psychological science with spirituality, Zen Buddhism, meditation etc So this chapter um, I think I'm trying to uh, give people a sense of uh, both the, atten- the the tension between these two approaches but also the promising effort of uh, bridging science and spirituality together
2: yeah that's um, that that's really really fascinating and um i think our our listeners would really get um I think there's a there's a lot of kind of resemblances and with a lot of these kind of trends happening also outside of, of China. Um, if we move on to chapter seven of your book um, titled Therapeutic Governing, you look at how certain therapeutic techniques are appropriated by individuals and organizations in the wider social and political setting to revamp supposed socialist governing at a time when socialist thought work has lost, lost its effectiveness. So here, um, socialist thought work as you referred to earlier in the the discussion, referring to right, the the parallels with with CBT. Um, But in chapter seven, you present to the reader the genuine interest that institutions have in implementing psychotherapeutic techniques. Um, These institutions include government agencies such as the police and the military and also state-owned enterprises. So through this kind of implementation of psychotherapeutic techniques, you describe a soft style of governing being implemented. That underlies the affective dimensions of power expanding in China. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what this soft style of governing through care and love entails? Mm, yeah, this is
0: another uh... Of my favorite chapters, <laughs> because it's very yeah. important, this whole issue, right? About therapeutic yeah. governing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. this book, I think, is three parts is culture in psychotherapy, therapeutic itself, therapeutic governing. I think the three uh, important pillars of the book. So, soft modes of governing. Yes, I think in China, um, uh, under the more recent regimes, Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping, a new style of governing is uh, emerging and very much preferred. So it's in the name of Guang uh, Ai, right, loving care, rather than through uh, straight political domination or control, right? That's obviously still there. But the new regimes, are more interested in um, uh, different styles, uh, more preferred styles through uh, loving care, or some people call it kindly governing, kindly governing. Um, And I think psychotherapy, psychology, play a very important role in enabling this form of governing. So the example I give, for example, it's uh, in the, Chinese uh, military, the paramilitary hospital, I did some research there, and the police nowadays. So for the soldiers, when they come in, for example, now these soldiers are subject to screening by doing psychological testing, which was completely absent before. Um, So they have to take this uh, specific test with answering a bunch of questions, and then they are screened whether they are psychologically stable and mentally stable. If not, if they have serious issues, they will be uh, basically uh, kicked out. If they have mild issues, then they were subject to psychological counseling. So this new style of governing uh, actually, I think, gets deeper into the soldiers and the police officers um, inside, the inner you know, their, their, the ways of thinking and their psyche, right? Um, so it's a, it's a softer form, and it doesn't come as a harsh. And also in the name of help, right? They offer, for example, uh, the police and soldiers psychological counseling if they have issues. But, of course, uh, there are a lot of problems, and there's a dilemma there because this uh, psychotherapist, uh, counselor's, who work for the military and the police, they are mostly cadres, party members. Um, So they have to uh, fulfill their political loyalty to the superior. So they have to report to their superior if they see any problems, important major problems. At the same time, as therapists, they are supposed to protect the privacy of their clients, So as you can see, they are kind of caught in between. So in reality, it's not very uh, easy. So I think uh, um, I talk about this emerging form of uh, uh, soft governing uh, on paper. It sounds really good, but in practice, oftentimes people run into a lot of problems and they they have a lot of dilemmas they have to negotiate. Um, But maybe we can also... In relation to this, uh, I think maybe you're going to ask that question, is uh, the, the you know, like I talk about uh, in the military, as opposed to in the enterprise, how this form of governing is at work. In the enterprise, like, for example, the commercial enterprises, um, the primary concern is how to create a productive labor force, stable and productive labor force. So it's very much like the concern of uh, uh, profits and productivity. And um, for the police and the military, uh, it's a concern of creating a stable, reliable uh, military force and a police force um, that can that can be effective. In combat and dealing with trauma and difficult issues. So here you can see uh, both the concerns for um, capitalist bottom line, you know, profits and productivity, and the political concerns here, effectiveness and stability. Both are at work.
2: So, the, so the main difference from from the kind of, um, the kind of thought work is that the political message might be downplayed or it's not as explicit and obviously the the capitalist um, initiative that's being imposed. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, so in those training workshops nowadays, right, they cannot do thought work because people are very uh, tired of that, political thought work. They just uh, don't want to listen. So instead, nowadays, when they have those workshops, instead of doing Political thought work. Um, what they do is they invite uh, uh, some prominent therapists to come in to help people work on their individual problems and issues, emotional family issues. Now, in that way, people find it refreshing and helpful because you know a lot of those people have issues with their spouse, with their children, and with their coworkers. They want to find a way to improve their relationship, but they don't know how. So this is an opportunity, right, to do that. And they are not now asked to read uh, political documents as we did before, right, the the thought work. So they find it um, acceptable, refreshing, and helpful. Uh, But by doing so, a lot of time, people um, are asked to turn away from larger structural problems and issues By focusing on their individual uh, problems and psyche, right? So in that way, uh, it also kind of uh, uh, depoliticized a lot of issues by turning away from politics and structural reforms um, to focus on the individual.
2: So now moving on to the epilogue of your book. Um, In the epilogue, you list the most recent developments in state intervention in health and well-being of the population and the implication of expanding medical gaze in Chinese society. Particularly striking is Chinese Healthy China 2030 Blueprint. Um, Can you tell our listeners a bit more about what this blueprint entails and how you envision the future of treating well-being in China to be? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the Healthy China 2030 blueprint um, outlines the principal rationale and steps to improve the macro health of the Chinese population over the next 15 years. Um, This is pretty striking because it's the first time that the health and well-being of the nation uh, have been considered a paramount. A paramount, um, a paramount strategic importance uh, for the Chinese governance. Uh, before we, you know, there was public concern, public health concerns, but uh, not to such a degree to put healthy China as the one of the most important goals of the nation and and the governing. Um, so, I think this is a significant uh, change and uh, uh, movement in the form of post-socialist governmentality. Uh, so very much here in the book, I, I talk about Michel Foucault's notion of governmentality, Right? how managing uh, uh, the population's health uh, has become a very important component of modes of governing. And therefore, I think this is a signal, it, it signals a very important move in the way uh, the Chinese government, the regime uh, thinks about the health of the population and how the health of the population is so intrinsically linked to uh, governing, the modes of governing. Um, so I think, and I also talked a little bit about Foucault's notion of noso politics, right? The disease politics, how disease control of disease and the health of the population uh, becomes so central to politics, and I think that also signifies a, a distinct feature of post modern uh, governmentality.
2: Absolutely. And of course, now, um, considering um, we're living amidst, amidst a pandemic, this is just getting increasingly um, prominent, not just in China, but, but globally.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I think globally, um, the concern of the yeah. health of the population will become um, a key part of governing and a, a, a test of government. Uh, as we are facing here, too.
2: Absolutely. That could probably be a whole other podcast episode or research study on its <laughs> yes. own. Right. Especially considering yeah. you're speaking from America and um, it just looks um, increasingly gloomy how um, how the president is, is treating his illness. So, um, yeah, so... Um, I feel like I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, it was such a pleasure reading your book and, and talking to you about, about Anxious China because I feel like um, it was, it's such an important piece of, of work of writing and it's such an honor to be talking to you about it today. Um, but before we conclude our con- conversation, Um, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit more about what you're working on or thinking about these days. So what kind of current projects um, have you been doing since Anxious China was published?
0: Yeah, um, first of all, it's my pleasure. It was such a pleasure to uh, talk with you. Yes, I would be happy to say a few words about my current project. So after completing the book, I have uh, started uh, to... Conceptualize my next book project, uh, which is on um, aging and elder care in China. And I believe this is another enormously important and under researched area uh, for China scholars. Um, you know, we know Chinese society is aging also because of the one child per family policy. Now we have a reversed. Uh, pyramid form of population structure. So pretty soon uh, after 10 uh, 20 years uh, we're going to have a large population of people over 60 population but much uh, less able younger um, people the structure is very problematic. So uh, who is going to take care of this large um, amount of uh, older people so uh, elder care uh, becomes a pressing issue in Chinese society. So I want to explore this area. And, of course, I'm still early um, in this project, and there are many different ways to approach this. So possibly um, one way is to uh, focus on uh, elderly's uh, mental health and how people deal with, uh, for example, memory loss, dementia, uh, when when people uh, entering their later stage of life and uh, start to lose memories, and or who is going to take care of them, and what kind of burdens are put on the family, etc. So uh, one way through this mental health angle to approach that, and another very important issue, I. Uh, I also want to explore is through maybe a, a science and technology study approach is to look at uh, how people deal with uh, elderly's uh, mobility. We know when people get old, they have reduced mobility. So how do they um, use new technologies today available um, to improve uh, older people's uh, uh, mobility and the access to different spaces. So we're looking at technologies for uh, movement, and also technologies for urban design, for housing, community design, and the use of technologies, for example, um, uh, smartphone, uh, etc. Um, so how how can we improve uh, elderly's mobility uh, by utilizing multiple? Technologies, so I haven't really decided how to approach this issue yet. But um, yeah, that's going to be my next project on aging and elder care.
2: Wow, it sounds really fascinating. Um, I feel like you you always manage to to really um, um, follow these much bigger trends happening in China before other anthropologists in the fields do. <laughs> <I know>. um, <laughs> Um, I really look forward to to reading more about your work and and hearing how it progresses. And I'm sure our listeners do as well. Um, So for now, I just wanted to thank you so much for putting time aside to join us today. And um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And um, I recommend Anxious China to all of our listeners. But for now, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you, uh,
0: Suvi, for really taking the time to read my book. Uh, I I feel like you really um, read it carefully and got a lot of uh, important uh, points. And uh, thank you for this really engaging conversation. Uh, I'm also grateful for your time.
2: Thanks again.